HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Our guest today, Taya Engst, is a seasoned bartender, a poet, and the author of multiple signature cocktail books. She is also a dedicated tarot card enthusiast. Her newest book, Spirits of the Tarot, tickled us. The beautiful book has 78 cocktail recipes key to classic tarot cards. And we wanted to hear how this idea came about, her tarot experiences, and how a cocktail recipe developer and bartender comes up with recipes. Like her interpretation of the Empress card, Aphrodite's Blessing, bourbon, creme de cacao, cognac, and chocolate syrup. Anyone? Let's have a listen to Taya. This is kind of an incredible and fun thing for me. I got the book Spirits of the Tarot, and I'm interested in tarot. And the idea of a whole set of cocktail recipes key to the cards just fascinated me. Taya, where did this come from? Which came first, the tarot or the mixology? So I like to say that I'm really fortunate. I have two great loves when it comes to my career path. And one is hospitality, particularly bartending, and the other is writing. So what happened was I was putting myself through grad school and um, in the process had to get a few jobs. And one of them was working at a restaurant. I started mixing drinks before I started with tarot. So in 2015, I went on a trip. I retraced my grandfather's steps through World War II for about two months. 
when I was leaving, my friend, who is actually also my co-author of my first book, Drink Like a Bartender, Lauren Vigder, gave me a gift of my first tarot deck. And she was just like, I don't know, just kind of, you know, thought that it would be something you'd be into. You're going to be alone and traveling. And, and she was just dead on. And it, it just spiraled from there with something that I continued to learn and practice. And because at the same time, I was also still learning and practicing bartending and mixing drinks and creating flavor profiles and cocktails and curating menus training other bartenders on how to do that. The cocktail books came from that. And then I was really fortunate that Adams Media and Simon and & Schuster published Drink Like a Bartender in 2017. In 2020, when I decided to leave restaurants and the world was falling apart, they asked me to consult on the unofficial Disney Parks drink recipe book because that author didn't drink alcohol. And they wanted some alcoholic drinks in there. So I was like, yeah, I'm unemployed. <laughs> I would love to do that. So I ended up, I've actually worked with Ashley Craft three times on three different books of hers for their alcoholic recipes. And then um, similarly, they got in touch with me and said, oh, we, we have this great podcaster, Liv Albert. Her podcast is Let's Talk About Myths, Baby. And she revisits the mythology or mythology, specifically like Greek and Roman mythology, through the lens of contemporary feminists and revisiting and telling the stories. So she had already written a book with them. They wanted to do a cocktail book inspired by Greek and Roman mythology. So we were together and she gave me this amazing chart of cocktails names and then any kind of detail that she really wanted, like Agamemnon's bathwater. She was just like, it just has to be read. Some of them were more specific. Um, some of them were like, I don't know, like, do what you want. So that was another thing where they searched me out because of the Disney books. And then after that, I was like, I want my own book. I want my own thing. Tarot really... I really identify with the practice and I enjoy it and I feel very close to it. I think that I can do this. And be, I think because I had already done all those books with them, the door was cracked open. So I just wiggled my way in and they liked the pitch and went for it. So this is so interesting. So you start with the idea and then you look at the card or you think about a Greek myth and you think, hmm, do you have a flavor come into your head? What's your process? Sometimes it's definitely the flavor first. If you want something to be sour or bitter or even just like really rich, for example, like the pentacles, a lot of those cocktails are more rich because the pentacles are about financial gains and physical, tangible things and stability in a very physical way. Those had that tie-in for me. And then I actually had to restrain myself because as soon as I was making a cup, card, I was like, blue curacao, it's gonna be blue. So there are a few blue drinks in there. There's some like cool greenish yellow ones, which was really fun too, because sometimes it was like, most of the cards, I would say actually, all the drinks have more than one tie to the card in some way or another. So it's not just like, oh, this is a blue one. So it's for the cups. There's more depth to each of them. But so often, it was the flavor. Sometimes it was the herbs, like the cleanse for the Ace of Cups. I made a cilantro syrup because cilantro is a cleansing agent and one of my favorite flavors ever. So it started with being like, okay, what what's like a detoxer or what has been associated in traditional medicines or for the old ways, even if it's not true anymore, as something that used to cure whatever. 
So there's all different angles that it came from. And I guess there wasn't one way I did it. I had to get real creative. I did the whole thing beginning to end in nine weeks. So oh my gosh. I, I didn't have a lot of time to waste. I'm just flipping through this and wondering, how would I use it? So I would, let's assume I would have my cards read and then I would yeah. pick one of the cards and say, I'm going to make that drink. How did you imagine people would put it into practice? I imagined it um, as sort of being more just you and the deck. And there's some walkthroughs of spreads, everything from like just a simple three card spread. I often just pull one card in the morning, just what's my day going to look like? So it can be something like you've had a long day and you have a full bar and you just shuffle the deck and pull it. And that's the cocktail you make. I kind of, you know, the way I pitched it was like it's have you ever gone to a bar and you just like don't know what you want and everything always, looks good always. And you're just like bartender's <laughs> choice what are you into right now so it's like doing that but with the tarot deck so this your spirit guides are your are your bartenders so that's how i envisioned it and the way i say i've said to a few people is okay do the drawing do the spread you want which card calls you the most which card even like if you were to open it and be like okay i pulled these three cards and I don't like what those flavors look like, so I'm going to use the other card. So it's flexible with how you want to use it. And then if you don't want to pull a card, you can also just thumb through it and see what looks good. <laughs> you can just make the drink. So yeah. tell me about your attachment to tarot. Do you feel a mystical attachment to it? When you do tarot, do you use it as a prompt or do you believe that it is speaking to you? I believe that it is speaking to me. If I'm sitting down with a question, I do the whole cleansing the room, cleansing the apartment, especially if it's been, if something's really weighing on you, I do the entire cleanse. Just for people who don't know, the cleanse is... Yeah. yeah. So what I always do is before I do a reading, especially, and also especially if I'm doing a reading for someone else, because I don't want my energy clouding anything, I will take either a sage or palo santo stick and i do palo santo once a week just to do a nice heavy cleanse of my apartment palo santo is on the scale of one to ten it's like an 11 and then sage is more like seven and then so i just i open a window so the negative energy has somewhere to go and then i smudge the whole room and apartment get in into the corners and all the dark places that a negative energy could hang where there's just not a lot of movement. And then even my deck, I will cleanse it with the smudge stick that I'm using, but also I put my hand on it and visualize the energy of the moon coming through me and putting itself on the deck and then I knock it three times to release anything it might be holding on to from its past reading or from where it was hanging most recently. So that's just like how I get started. I love doing readings for myself, but I also sometimes feel like sometimes I give myself the answers that I want. And so I do really like to outsource to other tarot readers because I like to see if they're getting the same thing as me and what I can trust from my my own intuition and from what I believe at the end of the day are my spirit and ancestral guides giving me the message that I want. Did that answer your question? Kind of, yeah, it did. <laughs> but it seems to me that there are two ways to do tarot. One is that you do it yourself and you mm -hmm. and you let it explain you to you. 
Mm-hmm. And the other thing is you have somebody who guides you through it, and there's some kind of communion that goes on between the person mm-hmm. who's giving the reading and me or you, the subject of the reading. And it takes mm-hmm. us in different places. Um, mm-hmm. Do you? So you're doing this, and then do you have a drink based on... <laughs> well, I don't recommend drinking and then doing tarot. When you consume alcohol or take any kind of drug, your boundaries are weakened towards negative energy, essentially. This is obviously like my belief system. So I say like with the book, do the reading first, then choose the drink. And then let your if you're with friends, let them have their round. But I wouldn't sit around and just like pick drinks and get drunk all night while you're you've got like this door open (laughs) (laughs) to intruders. Then if you don't believe it and you want to have fun that way, that it's totally up to you. But I would say don't get drunk um, and open the tarot gate. <laughs> Tell me about two kinds of experiences. One of your most revelatory tarot reading experiences and one of your most revelatory bartending mixology experiences. And how do the two go oh. together? <laughs> Interesting. That's a really good question. So... For tarot, I've had a lot of readings, and every time I go to Salem, I try to get a tarot reading, mm. and I don't really do any research. I just walk in where there's a sign up for tarot readers, just because I like I love the experience and I want to see what they have to say. In Salem, Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Okay. Yeah, I love yeah. Salem. Yeah, <laughs> I live in Providence. I lived in Somerville, Mass, for eleven years, and now I live in Providence, Rhode Island. So I'm still not too far from Salem. So I was in Salem a couple years ago. No, it was pre-pandemic. So sorry, three years plus. <laughs> Don't you find that everybody does that? They kind of, they, they're really not sure when things happen. They only know before the pandemic. Yes. Okay. I can. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. Life before. Yeah. yeah. The, yeah. In the old world, I was in Salem and I wandered into a store and they were like, oh yeah, Mark can take you right away. And I went in and he was so on point in a way that it was just really surprising. One of the things that he said that really struck me was, you and your mother struggle with sort of a power dynamic, and you always have. And I, of course, like my first thought is, yeah, but who doesn't? Like, who, who could say, <laughs> no, my mom and I like have always get along. We're besties. We've never had a, a fight in our lives. I was like, okay, yeah. And he was like, and it's actually because in your past lives with her, you've always been older and you are, your soul is actually older than hers and your soul knows that. So you always have this struggle where you don't want to listen to her because your soul knows that she's a newbie and you're not. And I like looked at him and he goes, because you're not from here. You're a star seed from the Sirius system. And then he just tilted his head and made eye contact with me and was like, but you already knew that. And I was like, did you? (laughs) And that was the weird thing that I had been told that before by other readers and mediums where it's like, you're a star seed, you're not from here, you've had many lives before this. I've even had another psychic and tarot reader tell me the same thing about my mom. Oh, your soul's just older than her. You guys just class because like, you're, and so I was like, and like, that's what was weird where I was just like, oh, is this just something like a spiel that people give and it all adds up once again to like that power dynamic that people often have with their 
parents. And then when he like tilted his head and looked at me and was like, but you already knew that. That's when I was like, oh my God, I'm going to listen to everything. I was like, I wish I was recording this. <laughs> this guy's a real deal. So that was really amazing. I wish I could remember more than the fact that his name was Mark. What is a starseed? That just means that your soul wasn't originally on planet Earth in the reincarnation process. So mine was apparently in the Sirius system on a star out there. And I ended up here. My energy ended up here just reincarnating in human form. Well, you may be the first alien I've ever met, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not sure. You know, I may have met. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, hey, you might be one too. You need to get a reading and ask specifically where you're from. <laughs> I can imagine that after a reading like that, you needed a drink. <laughs> oh my God, yes. Yeah, so I just came out. And that's like the funny thing when you have a tarot reading in Salem that's so dead on because then you rejoin the world and you're like walking through the street and I was with my friends and one of them was like, that's stupid. I would never spend money on that. And the other one was like, tell me how it was. And so I am going through it with her and talking about it. And my response was so like, it really hit me in the gut. And because of that moment, it just made everything because he said other things that were very dead on for verifiable how I am my past whatever but then it's like when someone's so dead on like that and they're telling you like to do a b and c in the future you're like I have to do this <laughs> you know so yeah so I don't remember if I had a drink after that <laughs> but I, I'm sure I did at some point that day but yeah that was pretty amazing what would have been the right drink for you to have after that Oh, well, let me see. I've what, got the book. Been... <laughs> yeah, I know that it was also a nice warm day. And he was talking about moving on. He was saying how usually I'm really good at change and taking on new challenges. And I'm really good at change and taking big leaps. But he was like, you've had this one decision that you haven't been able to take the leap on. So what's stopping you? And he even pointed out, that like I have a cicada tattoo and he was like you've been you're sleeping <laughs> under the ground like a cicada like it's time so he even like used the, these things he's like you brand yourself with things that are changing and that metamorphosize because I have a moth on my arm too and he was like and yet here you're choosing to stay underground at that point I was thinking about leaving the state and moving to Atlanta Georgia and I just was too scared to do it, too comfortable where I was. And by the time I was like, okay, I'm going to go for it. It was 2020. <laughs> so, yeah. So you didn't move. <laughs> I didn't move. I mean, I moved to Rhode Island, but not Georgia. Well, um, we can, maybe someday. Well, you moved south. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a little south. It's not a lot of south. Yeah. My husband always jokes that he grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts. And to him, when they said Southerners, he thought they meant people from Connecticut. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I guess it counts. And we'll be back with Taya in a moment to hear more about how a bartender creates new cocktail recipes. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, 
The tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. And we are back with Taya Engst, author of Spirits of the Tarot. I think tarot itself is interesting. And also, I'm fascinated by people who can shift flavors in their head for drinks. Mm -hmm. I can do that when I cook. But it strikes me that it's very hard to do that with cocktails. And so obviously, that is not something that you find hard to do at all. Do you taste it in your head? Or do you have to make every cocktail and say, hmm... It needs more, I don't know, curacao, or it needs more. Yeah. How do you do that? Yeah, so I actually learned a really good tip when I was the lead bartender at a bar called Lone Star in Cambridge. And the owner, Max, used to tell us, if you're thinking of working with something, don't make a four-ounce cocktail off the bat. It's not going to be good. (laughs) His suggestion was... So like, say you're like, oh, I want to work with a rum base and I really want to use this new Amaro that just came in. So you pour a little bit of the rum in a shot glass, take a tiny sip, familiarize yourself with that palette. And then you take another shot glass and you pour a little bit of that Amaro in it and you taste it, familiarize yourself. And then you put them together. How do they taste together? Is it like terrible? (laughs) (laughs) then move along. It's not going to be great, of course, but is it something you can work with? What's it lacking? What's too strong? How can you balance that strength out? And at the end of the day, what flavors do you want the consumer to be enjoying in this? So what are you going to add from here that's going to help them get that, like, whether it's super bitter herbal Amaro flavor with hints of sweet rum and whatever, Or is it, this is, I wanted the bitterness and the herbal to be really on the back end, very subtle. So what I really want is it to be more like a rum old fashioned with a hint of that herbal bitter on the end. Where do we go from there? I just said rum old fashioned. So another thing that I always lean on, especially in writing these books, but when I was behind the bar as well, is if it's already a classic, it's probably good. Try making that. It's probably got similar, if something has similar ingredients or flavor profiles in the ingredients, and it works well in a gimlet. I think gimlet daiquiri recipes are really easy to riff off of because they're delicious, they're simple and easy. Three ingredients. And then, so you can start with something that you know works and then put your own twist on it. People are so into cocktails now in a way they weren't. When I was coming of age, cocktails, that was something your parents did. No young people ever had cocktails. And so I date the new cocktail thing from when people started having the really big ice cubes. That's when I first noticed (laughs) that people were having, that that they looked like you could build the pyramids out of them. Yeah. (laughs) But 
What do you think that is? Because I've been reading recently that the cocktail culture is starting to displace the craft beer culture. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really interesting. I started working in a restaurant in 2009, and it was the beginning of the craft beer movement in the Boston area. So this was in Somerville, the bar I was at. It was like our cocktail menu was just like classics. We had solid wine, but we had 28 rotating draft lines. And people would come in for it and people would, we'd even have a coming soon portion of the menu. So regulars would be like, what do I have to drink to make sure or like to try that one sooner? And they would just try to empty the keg (laughs) day by day so they could try the next one coming up. So I was a part of that for sure. And then as the years went on, cocktails came up more and more in the city. And I think that part of it was, there was this sort of classy mystique about them. They were the Roaring Twenties, that romantic pre and post prohibition era became something that people were more and more fascinated by. And with that was the craft cocktail scene that sort of really started before prohibition and then prohibition stopped it in its Mm. tracks. And I think that that really slowed down the cocktail movement The 90s cocktail movement was so sugary. I don't know how to say it. Like everything was a martini. It wasn't a cocktail. And it's just, that's just not how it is. Martini is is a specific kind of drink. Just because it's in the martini shaped glass doesn't make it a martini. But that was something that happened in the 90s. And I'm not really sure why. But I think that those cocktails kind of took over for a minute. There was the tequila boom of the 90s that decimated the agave plant, Blue Weber agave. So I think we were like itching for proper cocktails by the time the 2000s were getting going. In 2012-ish was when it really started to hit harder in my area, at least. There was a bar that opened near mine called Back Bar. And it was opened by someone who used to work at a bar called Drink, which was one of the best cocktail bars. It still is one of the best cocktail bars in the city. Really a unicorn in Boston at the time. I would say Drink and then Eastern Standard were the two best cocktail bars. And so the back bar permeating our neighbor, our little neighborhood, and being there where it's like you're paying $14 for a drink and there's no speed pours on the bar. Like, we're not here for speed. We're here for the craft. I think that was a big turning point. As someone who was like, oh, I'm interested, but I don't know how to do this. I don't know where to get started. I could talk to you about beer all day, but not cocktails. And then when you could see what other people were doing and taste things, and that was a bar where it was the first time that I went and I had bartender's choice and I would go and I would drink whatever. And the bartenders are so well educated that they would be like, oh, not only is this what you're drinking, but this is who created it. And this is where she works. That was just like a really cool experience and definitely made me want to continue bartending and to continue learning and start mixing more and making my own drinks. I was fortunate that my bosses were supportive of us keeping up with that movement. At the end of the day, they saw that that's where things were trending. I'm not really sure what brought it on so much as just a good drink is hard to beat. So when (laughs) one person started doing it, the demand went up and up. And now 
it's hard to escape. No, and people are very, very careful in particular. And I see people studying the cocktail menus, mm -hmm. which was not always true, but they're studying them the way they would study, oh, this is a really interesting appetizer. I think I'll try that. There's an appetite for that. Yeah. Have you ever been behind the bar with your tarot hat on and seen somebody who didn't know what they wanted to drink and felt like you should offer them a card and the drink that goes with it? <laughs> no, so I haven't been bartending since I wrote the book, but I have helped plenty of people decide on what they want to drink. What do you normally like? A good question is always, what spirits do you like? What do you hate? Just tell me right away, like what spirits you can't do, what flavor profiles you can't do, and we'll go from there. I really always loved those moments because you could create something from scratch or you could pull out a classic that person had never heard of. And then the coolest part of that was when you'd be behind the bar two weeks later, three weeks later, and your coworker would come up and be like, hey, do you recognize that person down there? They say they want you to make that drink you made last time for them. And that's when you're like, that's really cool. That was my recipe. Hopefully you remember what you did for them. But if it was good, you probably do because, you know, it was something you could put in your back pocket. And that's happened to me a few times. And it's just like the best feeling. That was like some of the best feelings I had behind the bar. There was another moment where I one night was bartending in like 2018 and I took a break, ate my dinner, came back behind the bar and I pull out the tickets because I'm about to start making drinks and I look up and this make eye contact with this customer and he was like, there you are. I finally found you. <laughs> he was like, I didn't know where you went when you left the last place. And I just thought I'd never see you again. And here you are. So and so it was really nice that he'd been keeping his eye open for me you have a following. Um, behind the bar somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So it makes you feel like a little celebrity. One of those rare jobs where when you're really good at your job, it really shows and you get recognized for it. And I always really liked that. Well, I think that being a bartender is a special relationship because you're typically eye to eye with somebody. They're usually mm -hmm. sitting at the bar. I know there are people who just walk up to the bar and get it, but there's a lot of sitting and interacting, mm -hmm. which isn't what happens if you're, I've been a server a lot of places. Mm -hmm. um, but it seems to me like it's a, it can be more of an intimate relationship mm -hmm. to be a bartender. Um, yeah, absolutely. Say that I picked out the death card by mistake. What would you make me okay. to drink so that I don't feel so terrible about this? <laughs> <laughs> so here, I, yeah. So I did a play on a death in the afternoon for the book because what? How could I not? So I think it's important to remember that death is a sort of beginning, and that the death card is a really. It's a, I see it as a positive card because it's about shedding what no longer serves you, starting fresh. You can't grow further unless you let go of some things. So if I, if you were like, oh my God, I pulled this death card, I'm going to have to quit my job and start a new career doing whatever, I would probably... I think the death in the afternoon is a good fit, the play that I did on that, because it's bubbly. It's a little celebration. It's a little like anise a little herbal. It's different. It's fun to make because there's a sugar cube in it that's going to dissolve and, and be fun to look at and watch. And so we could celebrate the end of something and the beginning of something new. I think it's pretty appropriate. I think I did well on that one. <laughs> What's your favorite drink in the book? That's a good question. I don't know if I could choose. What do you find yourself making from the book? 
So I drink a lot of Manhattan and Manhattan variations at home. So if it's a strong and stirred whiskey-based drink, that's probably what I'm gravitating towards. That being said, there's a play off a cocktail that I created back in like probably 2014. And it at the time I called it the Rose Tyler after Doctor Who's companion. I don't know if there are any Doctor Who fans. Oh, really? I'm quite familiar with Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah, yeah, are you? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, yeah, so, but I did a play on that and I can, I think it was for the, the three of wands and they took a picture of it and I can see the picture in the book and it's just this beautiful stemmed glass and there's a rosebud floating in it. And it's not exactly the rose Tyler that I did for the bar that I worked at when I opened that, but that one makes me really happy because it's light. It's a little floral, but it's not like in your face and it's not going to knock you on your butt if you drink it because it's not super strong. Well, I have to say that half of the recipes in this book are just fascinating to me. They're things I would never imagine putting together. A couple of them are things I've actually never heard of, but (laughs) (laughs) But that's okay too. But this is so fun. It's so fun. The idea of it is fun. My sister often scolds me that she can't recreate my recipes because she doesn't know what the ingredients are. So I get that a lot. When you're making 78 original recipes, you got to get creative and branch out a lot. So I apologize, but I swear they're not all that hard. And that's part of why I did the syrups too, that you could just make at home because they're so easy and they're so simple. And what I hope is that people will start making them from my book and then be like, oh, I could do this with some of my my favorite herbs that aren't in this book and my favorite flowers and whatever. So I I hope to just expand that. And I also like love when I like making fun syrups because I also really like to support sobriety. And when you have a yummy syrup, then you can make something even yummier for your friend who's not drinking or your friend that's driving everyone home, anything like that. They don't have to just like sit there with a soda or something. You know what I mean? It's just like, why not make them something fun and beautiful and well-crafted? doesn't have to have booze in it to be that. Well, I have two requests. The first request is I would very much like you to help me come up with a let's talk about food cocktail. So if you think of something, (laughs) just that would be something a little fun, I'll broadcast it all over. I would love that. And the the second question is, so what's next? What's next? That's a good question. So when I had told you that I retraced my grandfather's steps through World War II. And but you did you didn't tell me where you went. So My grandfather was very private. He didn't talk about the war at all. However, somehow I ended up with the name of a woman that he dated when he was stationed outside of Vienna after the war, before he came back to America. Her name was Taya. They dated. He came back to America. He met my Nana. They got married. And he wanted to name their daughter, first daughter, my mom, Taya. And Nana was like... Yeah, no. Uh, Obviously, years and years went by and he had a bunch of grandkids and my mom and dad couldn't figure out or decide what to name me. I was the fourth girl. And I think they were just worn out and tired. 
Nana actually suggested, why don't you name her Taya? Your grandfather always liked that name and whatever. And so they went with it. So I ended up with this name and this weird little story. And because of how it's spelled, because of how it's pronounced, people are always like, oh, you know, is that a family name? And I'm like, well, kind of. And (laughs) is it short for anything? It's a name that gets like a lot of follow-up questions. So it's not really something that I could just like forget. So he passed when I was in my early 20s. And about six years later, I just got fed up with not having answers. I did my best to re-piece where he was. There was some contradicting evidence from... I made the mistake of listening to stories before I did more <laughs> research. And so I thought that he was in a, one infantry that he wasn't. So I did all this research on the wrong infantry and their steps. And so I started in France. He was not at D-Day, but he did tell me that he arrived to Europe on a beach in France. So I thought that would be sort of a romantic way to to start it. And so I did the beaches tours, which were unreal and amazing. And where did I go from there? Then I did, oh, then I did a week in Provence just for myself because I'd never been. And it's there like the best A lot of soldiers planet. spent a week in Provence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> and then I went up to Belgium. So his first battle was the Battle of the Bulge in St. Fifth. And that was really incredible because I was just staying at an Airbnb and the person who was hosting it was a young, probably 20 something kid. And he was like, I told him what he was doing. And he was like, my grandma was here. And I was like, what? So I got to sit down with this 90 something survivor of the Battle of the Bulge and talk to her about the town before, during, after the war Mm. and just hear her amazing story. So that was just so cool. So that was in Belgium. And then I went to Margraten in the Netherlands for the American cemetery there or the Allied Cemetery. I went to Dresden for a minute, Prague for a minute. I went to Krakow and I did the tours of Auschwitz. And then I ended in Vienna. Yeah. So what's next for me? The novel. (laughs) I'm trying, I finished the novel based on all this and I'm trying to find an agent. So I'm hoping that uh, that will be the next book that's on shelves. How fun. Aren't you great? (laughs) Thanks. Wow. Yeah. I'm going to end this here. Well, I can't wait to read your novel and all the other fun things that you're going to do because you're still only, what, 12 years old. And (laughs) (laughs) I will be 37 by the end of the month. Well, you still look like you're 12 years old, so. (laughs) Thank you. I think it's from bartending nights because I just don't think I was out in the sun much. I was like, I think I'm a little bit of a vampire. Um I want to mention, as far as what's next, I did create a little instant cocktail jar line to bring the craft cocktail to your homes. So I have that going on, too. I can't believe I, I've been working on it all weekend, and I just forgot to bring it up. But yeah, I make these flavored sugar cubes, and I put some dehydrated citrus. I only have two now, but I'm working on some summer cocktails. It's called Poetic Pours. And all you have to do is add the liquid and give it a shake and the sugar dissolves and you have got a craft cocktail right there. So I have an old fashioned and then I've got a Moscow mule right now. So I'm working on some more and doing like a local market in a couple weeks. So I love that. Yeah. I am your market because I can't 
I'm not a good mixologist. (laughs) (laughs) And on the website, I say it's essentially, you can't sit at my bar anymore. I'm not bartending. But when you have one of these, it's like you're pulling up a bar stool and sitting at my bar and enjoying something that I would handcraft for you right then and there. And you can just enjoy it from the comfort of your home. I like to make home bartending more approachable for people because it should be fun, just like cooking. That's great. I love it. And you're going to call it again? It's called Poetic Pours. <laughs> I love it. Because poetry yeah, was where yeah. it all started for me. <laughs> the website that, that you have is... So it's PoeticPours.com. Okay. I love it. Thank you so much, Taya. Yeah. Taya Thank Eggs, you. This is great. The author of Spirits of the Tarot. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Taya. The book is Spirits of the Tarot and is published by Simon & Schuster. Thanks for listening. Let's Talk About Food is produced by The Food Voice. I'm producing, along with audio director and composer Mike Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, and on Heritage Radio or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.